Hi, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. At FX Medicine, we strive to be clinically relevant for you. So please get in touch with us if there's a topic you'd like us to explore or a specific expert you'd like us to interview. You can email info at fxmedicine.com.au or contact us via Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today is a very interesting mix of a surgeon who's diversified. This is Dr. Matthew Ball. He's an ophthalmic surgeon with additional subspecialist qualifications in cornea and anterior segment surgery. Dr. Ball completed undergraduate medical training at the University of Adelaide, followed by a Master's in International Public Health at the University of Sydney, before commencing ophthalmology training at Sydney Eye Hospital. During his time at Sydney Eye Hospital, Dr. Ball was heavily involved in training new ophthalmology registrars and was recognised for excellence by being awarded both the Churchill Fellowship and the Norman Rose Travelling Scholarship. He also participated in developing world programs such as the Myanmar Eye Care Program and was a senior medical officer for Medicines Sans Frontiers in Ethiopia. After completing ophthalmology qualifications, Matt completed two further fellowship qualifications in the UK, first in corneal surgery at Bristol Eye Hospital and then in anterior segment surgery at the prestigious Moorfields Eye Hospital in London. Since returning to Australia in late 2011, Dr. Ball has commenced contracted positions at Sydney Eye and St. George Hospitals and works in private practice in Gladesville, Brookvale and North Sydney. Now here's the twist. Dr. Matthew Ball, Matt Ball, also makes kombucha. And this is what we're going to be talking about today on FX Medicine. And I'd like to welcome you, Matt, to FX Medicine. How are you? Yeah, I'm well, thanks, Andrew. Great to join you. Now I've got to say, you've let's go back. Let's go first to this mix because you're you're an ophthalmologist, and this is hippie stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us how this all started. Well, I um, it seems like a bit out of left field, but uh, I mean, I've had a long-standing interest in what optimizes performance, and uh, because you need quite a lot of concentration and and uh, fine motor control for eye surgery. Um, and for years ago, I got into yoga and meditation and other ways of sort of optimizing physical and mental performance. So uh, out of that, um, I've also been interested in the long term in, in windsurfing and other water sports. So that all combined to frustration when I was living in London um, in the sense that it was cold and wet and grey. And, <laughs> and there's no and surf. Wanted to get out of there. <laughs> and there's no surf. <laughs> And um, I was reading a, bu- a book by a big wave Hawaiian surfer, and that book um, is all about performance, mind and body performance. And uh, in that book, he mentioned, Laird Hamilton wrote the book, he mentioned uh, various organic foods and meditation, yoga, um, exercises for fitness, but he also mentioned kombucha as a superfood. And, uh, and I pretty much heard of everything else in the book except that. So uh, at the time, I did some research in London, 
and uh, couldn't really find anything. This is about six, seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Couldn't really find anything in London. And um, then when we got back to Sydney, did some research in Sydney, and I think I found a couple of brands on the shelf in the About Life supermarket. And um, and that sort of sparked my interest. And my wife and I, for the life of us, couldn't afford a home in Sydney. So we thought, oh, well, if we can't afford a home, why don't we go on a holiday? And we always wanted to go to Maui, especially because it's the best windsurfing in the world. Yeah. And uh, so we signed up to do a month of yoga teacher training and, uh, and windsurfing and, and things in Maui. Got over there and saw um, a sort of huge community of people drinking kombucha. And uh, and the guys we were training with said, oh, you got to go and see this kombucha bar. So there's a little kombucha bar up in Haiku in Maui. And we, we ended up going up there every day and getting our refills off the tap and and uh, all the fit people, big wave surfers, wind surfers, yoga people were going in there getting their refills. So it was quite a sort of cool vibe. Mm. And at the time, we were like, why isn't anything like this in uh, in Australia? And uh, the guy behind the bar said, yeah, well, every Aussie that comes in here says that, you know, never says anything <laughs> about it. Yeah. So um, uh, we got back to Sydney and we, we were still intrigued by this and we thought, oh, we should, we should start making it. So then the biggest issue is where do you get a starter culture from? So at that stage, uh, Lara's younger brother, Tom, was studying fermentation at uni and uh, and she said, oh, I bet he will know where to get one. So we rang him up and, and he said, yeah, I bought one last week. Do you want it? <laughs> You're kidding. So, uh, yeah, it was just unbelievable timing. Yeah. So uh, he hadn't started doing anything with it either. So he said, yeah, you guys can have it. So we, we exchanged him dinner for our first SCOBY which is the culture, and uh, brought it back to Sydney. We drove down to Canberra to get it off him. Mm. Quite excited. And, uh, what, to go to Canberra? To Sydney. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> but you came and, back with uh, a SCOBY. Can, can I just digress for a tick? Because I, I should yeah. include your lovely wife, Lara, with whom you started yeah. this business, Wild Kombucha. Um, tell me a little bit about yours and Lara's background. How did you meet? What 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 raised the interest? And was it a a, a unity and going, hey, this is cool stuff, or was it like one was going, what the hell are you talking about? Like, were you both on the um, same level? Well, interesting. Um, Lara's background's in art, and um, and she was quite a successful artist in her own right. In fact, she studied architecture and fine art at university. But um, despite being awarded one of the top scholarships in London for architecture, decided not to take it up because architecture wasn't creative enough for her. So um, she focused on art and, uh, and so has all, always been very good at um, making things happen. Mm. Her specialty was in installation art, so, oh. and, uh, which is a lot of people never heard of installation art, but it's essentially putting on events uh, or... Um, uh, one-off sort of installations that come together. And um, so she was the first artist to um, exhibit on Cockatoo Island before it became trendy. Right. Uh, and she was selected from that artwork to take a similar work overseas by DFAT. So wow. she made a big event happen in Turkey out of that and then also in Russia. So she took herself off to Russia on her own, St. Petersburg, found, a, found an abandoned space, worked with the Russian 
I think it was an abandoned prison she worked in, and uh, brought together some amazing artwork over there. Um, so she she is, um, yeah. If you want something to happen and get done, you get Lara involved. No, I've, I've, um, I've got to ask then. Like, if if Lara was over in Russia and that sort of middle European area, isn't this where yep. kombucha is traditionally from? Well, I think that's. It's probably one of the origins of it. Certainly, right. they're big on ferment, fermenting things. There's right. um, drinks like kvass, um, with fermented beet juice and things like that. Yeah. Um, so there's a bit of um, crossover, definitely, with Eastern Europe, and um, and probably, I mean, most likely, kombucha came out of China or Korea. Right. If you look it up, it's it's not entirely clear where it originated from. It may well have been that someone left their sweetened tea a little bit too long on the shelf. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'll, I'll get to that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so in terms of us meeting and crossover and things, she's already a very open-minded sort of creative person and used to me being a little bit esoteric. Um, but she's, she's um, in terms of um, how this came to be, she wasn't particularly interested in the drink until we got into it and then it allowed a creative um, sort of side of us to come out. Yeah. Now, I, I have to ask, though, as an ophthalmologist, wouldn't you have been laughed at by your colleagues? Like, what is this stuff? Like, <laughs> Yeah, well, I think um, I've never taken quite the traditional path Um so my colleagues were used to me being a little bit out of left field in the sense of being open-minded to other things. Yeah. And um, I think it was when I decided to go and work for Medicine Sans Frontier, that was after four years of ophthalmology training. So the traditional path then is to go straight to fellowship and then into private practice. But um, I don't think I would have been satisfied that I'd done everything that I wanted to do before I settled into private practice if I'd done that. So I took a year out and went and worked in Africa with malnutrition and other things, which is definitely not, you know, the mainstream sort of way of doing things. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's and it's quite fun in a sense to challenge um, the traditional paths. So when I first started, when we first came out with this, uh, yeah, I think a lot of people thought I was probably mad and they thought it was a little bit of a, a side project and and nothing too serious, but uh, then we gained some traction. And then when we took out our lease on our space in Leichhardt, which is um, 270 square metre warehouse, um, then people started to get interested. Yeah. And uh, and when they saw that um, that kombucha could be um, presented more as a product that sits along along the lines of beer or wine rather than just a soft drink in a bottle. Mm. Um, then people get even more interested. And when we had our opening, uh, we had quite a few ophthalmologists here, actually, oh, all who, who are quite excited <laughs> because I think there's crossover with doctors who go into you know beer making and wine making and all that kind of stuff. And I think the reason is because you all need a creative outlet. Yeah. Because uh, you know, medicine can get quite um, intense at times, and you need a you need a a, a sort of offset valve for that and uh, doing creative things allows that I think mm. so kombucha what exactly is it you mentioned the scoby before can you go into a little bit of the history behind it at least that which we know 
So, yeah, I mean, I think, as I said, we don't know exactly where its origins are. And uh, and there's various types of different fermented drinks. I mean, they've been around for centuries, all yeah. different types of fermentation. It depends on what the base is and then what the microorganisms are. And so kombucha is the base green or black tea. And, um, and it needs to be sweetened um, usually with, with, with um, sugar. And then you use that as your substrate for fermentation. And the SCOBY stands for a symbiotic um, colony of bacteria and yeast. Uh-huh. So the difference from beer or wine, which are pure yeast ferments, is that uh, kombucha has a bacterial component to it as well. So the SCOBY is actually um, uh, a colony. It's actually a biofilm, so it's a thickened mat that contains both the bacteria and the yeast in it and allows that colony to exist together. And so kombucha per se, it doesn't have a specific definition apart from the fact that you've got a multiculture in it. Um, and um, in general terms, from what we understand, the, um, the yeasts take the sugar and convert it to CO2 and alcohol. Yep. And the bacterial component of the culture, which is an acetic acid-producing uh, bacteria, take, convert that alcohol to organic acids. Right. And, um, so that's why, as opposed to beer or wine, where you, you get a certain amount of alcohol form, yep. uh, you get a much lower level of alcohol in kombucha because you, you metabol- you're constantly metabolizing the alcohol to acid. So the longer the brew goes on, the more acetic acid is produced. Um, and a slightly higher level of alcohol and, and, and gradually a drop up in the sugar. A true kombucha should be, um, should be slightly tart, um, so it should have a tart end point, which is the acetic acid, uh, and should be should have a little bit of residual sugar in it uh, because you can't brew the sugar out completely, um, and it should be naturally lightly carbonated. And if you get it right, it can be very much like a cider. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I remember you, you had a table at the at the Biocidical Symposium and I got, you had a bit of a fan club going on there, i got to say. <laughs> um, you know, I remember coming back for more than a taste cup. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the great fun part about it. I mean, to be honest, like Lara and I are yeah, interested in kombucha and love brewing it, but a huge part of this whole company has been about creating the experience around it. And I think a lot of that comes from Lara, you know, Lara's installation art background. Um, she loves making events happen. She loves putting on things for people to experience it. And kombucha sort of allowed that to to happen. Yeah. I, I'd got to say, though, going back to the comment you made before about, you know, that these doctors, you know, very often brew mm. wine or beer, um, to me, this is something along that sort of flavour because... I mean, I've tasted other kombuchas after yours. I've got to say, I went out and I bought a couple um, that were, yeah. you know, they were readily available in retail outlets and they were rubbish. And it was, just, there, was yeah. they were just, there was nothing to them. It was horrible. Whereas yours was, you know, really a refined product. It, it was really beautiful. And the, the different flavours that you had, it showed some work that you'd really put into that product. So, you know, I've got to say, it was it was quite awesome to taste. Can well, I ask? Can I ask you, though, like, Purported benefits of kombucha. Are we just talking as a nice drink, like a cup of tea, or are we really looking further now? 
Oh, we're definitely looking further. I mean, there's there's so many claims that get made about kombucha, uh, and I'm very wary as a health professional making any healthcare claims about it. So we don't. We have really concentrated on making a sophisticated, complex product, mm-hmm. um, and then whatever health benefits or however people feel when they drink our product is just an added bonus. But I think increasingly the medical profession is looking at gut health as drivers of, of our immune system, of drivers of um, systemic inflammation. And um, so we're pretty much looking at whatever it takes to improve gut health and therefore kombucha comes onto the radar of that. Yeah. And um, and I suppose that's the big question is um, is is how is it working because certainly anecdotally a lot of people feel better taking it. There's been animal studies that show that it improves um, detoxification of the liver and other things. But there hasn't been any human studies that shown big benefits. But then again, it's very hard to prove things um, nutritional, nutritionally. Mm. So um, my feeling is, um, having learned a bit more about gut health being on this path, is that it, it may well be to a large degree the acetic acid component that is beneficial mm-hmm. um, because uh, uh, apple cider vinegar thought to be very good for, for the for gut health and that may be because it's, it's a low pH drink and acidifying uh, your small intestine and large intestine and then potentially allowing beneficial bacteria to grow. Mm. I mean, it's out of my area, but this is my sort of feeling. And uh, and therefore, if you brew a kombucha down so it does have a tart endpoint to it, then that's probably where some of the benefit lies. The other thing is, what is a probiotic? I mean, probiotics have a specific definition through WHO, but um, I think our understanding is growing and growing about what, what is a true biotic and what true yes. probiotic and what does the gastrointestinal system actually need or need to yeah, consist of. And obviously there's genetic, environmental and, and other components to that. Um, the main organisms in kombucha are actually zygosaccharomyces, which is the main yeast. Now that hasn't necessarily been shown to be probiotic, but who knows? Mm. <laughs> and... Uh, and you've got acetic acid-forming bacteria, gluconiocetobacter, with a small amount of lactobacillus, which we know is probiotic. Right, okay. Um, so uh, it's hard to – I think it's impossible to know. Oh, look, I, I think we, we don't – The whole thing of probiotic has, has had a few um, changes in its definition over the time, you know. Mm. Um, I, I think we'd, the amount that we're learning about the microbiota of the gut, we're having to really take a step back and saying, well, how arrogant were we <laughs> yeah, in saying that this, yeah, in saying that this, and I've got to say most of the, if you look at most of the supplemental probiotics on the Australian market, certainly, yeah. a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them, certainly the older ones were all based on dairy. Now we're finding, oh, yep. hang on, there's lactobacillus plantarum. And, you know, you just mentioned mm-hmm. one like glucoacetobacter xylenus. Yeah. Um, th- there's all of these different bugs that are growing in our gut, giving us benefit. Yep. Um, yep. There, there's other bugs that I love, you know, the, the um, Acomantia yep. mucinophilia and um, yep. Fecalibacterium prautnitzii, you know, two bugs that we can't get in a capsule, but we found exactly. they've found incredible benefits. 
Yeah. Um, so I think we've got to look more about what can we give these bugs to feed them rather than giving yeah. the bug themselves. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I think that's, I mean, it doesn't make, because I, I don't think the studies are there as to this probiotic changes your microflora by this degree. And then even if it does, is that maintained? Yes, that's right. You know, and so therefore what makes far more sense to me is if you that you're feeding a garden and you're promoting the growth of the right organisms. Yes. And so how do you achieve that? Because I think ultimately um, what you're truly trying to achieve is is a good balance of the short chain fatty acid production so that, you know, things like butyrate and, and acetate being mm. anti inflammatory are what you want. Yep. Rather than propionate, which seems to be associated with pro inflammatory state. Um so it would be fascinating from my perspective if you could do a study on kombucha and short-chain fatty acid production, mm. which would be interesting. Mm. I mean, we've, I've got a gas chromatography here, but uh, at the moment we're just looking at alcohol and I've got some ideas at other things to look at. Right. Uh, um, but yeah, so, I think it's exciting times for kombucha. Oh. Oh, absolutely. I have to go, I have to mention though, you know, a few years ago now, in fact, it would have probably been around 10 years ago, the media got sensationalised about an issue of contamination. What what interested me, not so much at the time, but certainly now, it was like, well, hang on, what's the difference with my mum, for instance, making ginger beer and having the tops fly off and hit the roof? What's the difference Mm. from the man who inadvertently, hopefully, um, poisoned his, what is it, son and friend or something and uh, with oh, devastating consequences up in the, uh, where was that, in the North, yeah, yeah Northern Territory or, or North Queensland or something. Um, what's the difference with that? But they seem to harp on about this kombucha and I guess my guess is that maybe people were making wild claims about its benefits mm. and then didn't have a knowledge of general hygiene measures nor fermentation. So I guess yeah. I need to ask you for the average, you know, Joe Blow out there that wants to try and make kombucha, what sort of relevant education do you have to go through to really sort of be safe? Oh, there's a few aspects. I mean, uh, it's interesting you ask all that because very early on in our journey, I met with a professor of food microbiology at the University of New South Wales. Yeah, who's unfortunately now passed away, but Professor Graham Fleet and. Um, and he was fantastic because I sat with him for a couple of hours and the first thing he said to me is, you know, Matt, anyone dies from your product, you're in jail. Yeah. And um, and that kind of really strikes you <laughs> straight off because it becomes pretty serious. Yeah. But you need to know what's going on. And um, standard kombucha brewing is, is not difficult um, in the sense that um, you can take some sweetened tea and add a scoby to it and more than likely you will ferment something. Mm. The the main thing to know if you're doing it at home is um, that you need an adequate starter brew at a low pH because essentially the way kombucha works is because it becomes progressively more acidic that uh, selectively inhibits certain organisms. So you don't tend to get pathogenic bacteria if you're brewing your pH down well. Right. Um, so you want a reasonably low start pH um, and then you should have a pretty happy brew. Obviously, you need to be clean. You don't need to be sterile because it's not a sterile no. culture. Um, the other things to do, you need to keep an eye on the SCOBY that it's forming appropriately, and it's kind of only over time that you work out that every single culture is going to look different and is going to take, taste different because uh-huh. the microcolony is different 
and the concentrations of different organisms are different in all the cultures. Right. So, um, but what you need to look out for is things like mold, unusual looking organisms forming on the top. So there's theories about those those cases where people had bad reactions or uh, had toxic effects that maybe um, maybe as that was home brewing and then unusual organisms like Aspergillus or other um, yep. fungi. Um, forming on the on the scoby and that can easily happen if you've got an unhappy scoby yep um but with experience over time you can you know what to look for the other big issue with um, kombucha brewing is and it's not so much if you're doing it at home um but it certainly is as a commercial brewer's alcohol content and um so and that is the most challenging aspect of it because um in 2010 Lindsay lowen got pulled over for drink driving and she said all i drank was kombucha and uh, and people were like yeah right, but uh, but then they went and tested a lot of the bottles on the shelves in the whole food market, and some of them are three and four percent alcohol. Right. So because you've still got a living product, if you bottle it uh, and it still has this, a significant amount of residual sugar, essentially the fact that you've put a cap on it um, preferentially shuts down the bacteria and allows yeast fermentation uh, to continue. Right. So you, you can drive your alcohol levels up quite high, right. quite quickly. And so things like bottles exploding indicate high alcohol and probably high carbonation. And so a very fizzy kombucha can mean high alcohol levels as well. So um, the tricky, the trickiest part about kombucha brewing is knowing what each of your brews is doing from an alcohol perspective because, say, in beer – or wine making, if you know what your starting sugar is and you know exactly what yeast you're using, the tables have been done to work out what your alcohol content is once you've hit a certain residual sugar profile. So you can say, well, I'm down at this sugar, therefore there's this amount of alcohol in it. But in kombucha brewing, because you've got constant interplay between bacteria and yeast, and you, yeah. you don't actually know what your true alcohol level is doing. So- and um, so- how do you then stabilise it for an end product on the shelf? Do you have to kill off the yeast? Well, this is the issue. Um, you know, um, depasteurise it and kill everything off, and therefore lose some of the potential benefits if the benefits are in the living organism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so some companies do that. Uh, um, some more, you know, a lot of companies don't want to do that, and we don't do that. Um, so therefore, essentially, what you're relying on is. What I didn't say before is if you if you refrigerate the product, that significantly slows down the, the fermentation. So yeah. you should have a relatively stable product once it, as long as it's refrigerated. Um, so we rely on that in our kegs, but also we measure almost every batch in terms of what its alcohol content is, um, because the laws in Australia mean that you have to, and in the US mean that you have to be hitting about 0.5 percent alcohol. Right. which is very difficult and very hard to measure as well. Ah, okay. Now, I've got so, to say I've got to say I need to um talk about the evolution of of wild kombucha because I remember talking to you at the symposium and you you said that it evolved from naming scobies <laughs> to, <laughs> to to then numbered tubs and things like that. So it was like there's yeah. Bob. <laughs> And I've got to, sure. I've got to say, it reminded me of my sister going, "There's Amber the cow." And <laughs> yeah, um, yep. so, so tell me about that evolution, and, and you know, like what happened with, like for your, for instance, your knowledge of fermentation practices. 
Did that evolve yeah. along with it? Oh, definitely. Um, yeah, because in the beginning, we were your home brewers that didn't know very much about it. But then uh, as it went from, it went from a small, um, one of those uh, ball mason jars mm. um, into a slightly larger ferment container into a 200-litre tank quite quickly. Wow. And um, But then, then it's interesting once you start doing it, then you're like, well, how does this actually work and which organisms are in the SCOBY? And uh, then becomes, actually, I wasn't even interested in beer fermentation or any other form of fermentation until suddenly we got into this and then suddenly all that, that world of microbiology starts yeah. to open up. Yeah, yeah. And you only learn it very dryly at medical school, but it's actually really cool when you get into it from a food point of view or a beverage point of view. Mm. Um, so um, evolution went from, you know, basically – Lara saying, let's stick it in a 200-litre tank. I always joke, if it was me, it'd still be a really good-tasting, well, well-researched, well precision brew, but yeah. sitting at home on a shelf. But you give it to Lara, and it becomes a, bit, becomes a much bigger deal. Yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, so yeah, my, certainly my knowledge of fermentations increased a heap from reading, and then suddenly you become interested not only in the fermentation process, but the ingredients. Yeah, for instance, the water is so important. Everything's so important oh. to the happiness of the brew. Yeah, because you got to think of it. I just consider it like gardening. I mean, we have a heap of tanks now that all have their own individual personalities, brewing away at their own sort of rate, all tasting slightly differently. Um, and uh, and it's interesting because Professor Graham Fleet said to me, you know, the way you're doing it is how the best wineries in France make their wine. Right. You know they. They go along and taste test each individual one. I blend them up depending on taste, you know. And I said, "Well, what about what about testing things? What about measuring things?" And he said, "Well, there's only about three things you need to measure, and if you've got those under control, then actually what it really comes back down to is taste." Yeah. And um, and so that's what we've concentrated on. You um, actually raise an interesting point there, and that is the you know like these these exotic cheeses and and oh, I mean even blue cheese, you know, good old blue Stilton. I mean, it's mm. it's got stuff growing through it, kids, <laughs> and yet we yep, go on oh, no, exactly. kombucha. You know, you can't have kombucha. <laughs> right. okay. But jeepers, give me some of those reishi mushrooms. <laughs> exactly. And it's an interesting I mean, thing. It's an interesting mindset. Well, one of the biggest challenges we had when we started selling the product is how do you pitch it to people? Because when we started a few years ago, Majority of people are like, well, what's kombucha? And so you found yourself having to make a pitch about kombucha when you're standing at the tap. And it's like, oh, it's a fermented tea. And people, as soon as they heard the word ferment, they go right off it. And they yeah, go, oh, I don't yeah, want that. Yeah. And you're like, well, what do you think beer is or wine is or even you know, coffee and chocolate and everything else that we had before refrigeration is all fermented? Um, so, um, yeah, I think absolutely. Now we're at the point where people – a lot more people know what it is. Not explaining quite as much to people over the tap um, what kombucha is. I mean, I always joke, like, if you walk up to a barman uh, and order a beer, you don't sort of – I bet you if you ask the majority of people what beer actually is yeah. and how it's made, they wouldn't know. No, that's right. So it's, not as though, it's not as though the bartender has to say, well, you take malt and barley and then you do this and then you add this culture. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think it's really interesting from I'll, that point of view. I'll, I'll bet you any. 
I'll bet you any money if you took most people to a winery and showed them the huge vats that they have stuff in smelling like absolute death. (laughs) (laughs) I remember a high school school visit. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Out to Griffith. (laughs) And it was the wine, guys. It was the wine. (laughs) So um, I've got to ask, with regards to kombucha, it's a fermented product. It's got live bugs at least once living in it, probably now. It's certainly got yeah. um, the short-chain fatty acids. So these are a sort of yeah. a kind of like taking a vinegar, I guess different because you've got different types of bugs. But mm. are there any relevant things to taking kombucha? Do you have to start off with you know, a, a teaspoon or can you just lay into it and go, there we go, we're on it? <laughs> um, I think I, I, I tell people to start slowly. I mean, uh, because... It does depend a little bit on the on the brew itself. Mm. But certainly with our product, it's 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 brewed four to six weeks, so it's got a significant amount of acetate or acetic acid in it. And um, so you want to start slowly on that. There's, there are stories of people having detoxifying reactions after starting starting to take kombucha, or, or every now and then an allergic reaction. Right. Um, so the other thing is because it's quite a low pH. If you're someone that has um, uh, reflux issues or other problems, and that can stir those up. Initially. Yep. Yep. Um, so the other thing is, it's it's got it's still got some residual caffeine, sugar, and alcohol in it. So if you're you know if you're not used to those things, it can give you a little bit of a buzz. Um, so it's probably something to start. I tell people to take it in the morning to start with. Um, we're talking only a tenth of a cup of coffee worth of caffeine in it, um, but all those things combined um, can certainly have an effect on you. So ultimately, I'd love to say, you know, drink three litres a day <laughs> from a commercial perspective. But I think probably one 250ml glass a day is is, is is a good thing or a good start. I got up to a litre a day at one point and then found that that was probably enough. Matt, you chose to have wild kombucha on tap at various outlets throughout Sydney. What was your intention? Was it, you know, like bring it to the masses or, or like where was the where was the business um, direction there? Um, good question. I mean, we didn't really have a business plan when we started. We, I was, I was very keen to put it in kegs, just from a boy point of view, playing around with kegs and and uh, also having seen it on tap overseas and um, and the very first event that we did was a yoga festival um, and we put on two taps that day and we sold 220 litres on the first day that we sold it to the public. So um, out of that we met uh, Kirsten and James who owned the Orchard Street brand which is cold pressed juice and raw food and um, they were doing the store next to us on the day and they asked us if we'd put Combotron Tap in their new cafe that were, they were opening in North Bondi. So um, the business evolved from there. The big decision we we made was to invest in a, a full proper beer dispensing system mm. uh, because we really wanted to create the experience of of something coming off a very cold, refreshing looking tap. Um, and then we came up with the idea that you could use the tap as a refill station. Um, which would then support the concept of recycled bottles. So um, our business plan kind of evolved with our with our first set of taps, which 
Uh, I've got some mates that are in business and they said, well, you know, that'll be a great test case to see what happens there. And, um, and very quickly, Orchard Street started selling quite a lot of product. People were blown away by the having a beer tap dispensing system somewhere other than than a, than a pub. And um, we also found that um, uh, some days we'd go down and there would be people's refill bottles um, sitting down there with, with mobile numbers on them waiting to be called when the next oh. kombucha really? brew got dropped off. Yeah. And so that was pretty cool. Uh, we thought, gee, we might actually have something here. And so out of that, then uh, then Ed from Ruby's Diner in Waverley contacted us and then uh, his barista Marcus contacted us and so very quickly we had three sets of taps around town. People were loving the concept. And um, on the basis of three customers, then we took out a lease in Leichhardt and fitted out the space over here because we needed somewhere to... Um, and to brew it, test it, and we also then set up a cellar door-style tasting bar off the side. So um, we invested in that. And then from there, the things have really grown and grown. I think people are supportive of, firstly, very fresh kombucha off the tap, secondly, the recycled concept, mm. and uh, and thirdly, just the whole concept of having another option other than alcohol on a tap. Yes. Um, it's really – and we that's the bit that excites us is creating experience for people. Uh, and so we've done quite a few events and things where we've had kombucha on tap, yeah. and it's just been great fun. I, I, I think the the thing that I like is that it offers – Australia is the biggest per capita um, consumption of alcohol in the world, and mm. we have a whole plethora of health issues because of that. And yeah. the thing that I was most impressed by was the taste of kombucha giving me that quote-unquote, dare I say it, fix – all right, I know it's not alcoholic, but but it gave me that sort of feel that I was having a social drink. I'd love to yeah. see this sort of thing in pubs, but I've, I've got to say it's yeah. like one of the best stories of diversifying your interests and your income stream. Um, I've got to ask, what advice can you give other health practitioners wishing to get out of the eight hours work for eight hours pay paradigm? Is this like, like are you just lucky? Or is this something where you'd go, hell, go for it? Have you got to, like, what what sort of advice can you give other people? Have indeed, what what other what other hints and tips have you given to your orthodox um, colleagues? I teach a lot of medical students and registrars in eye surgery, and and I tell everyone firstly to take a year off of medicine. Yeah, I um, like I started with a commerce degree and then switched to medicine, and then after five years sort of realised that I needed to have a break and I remember the Dean of Adelaide University at that point pulling me out to his office and saying, no one takes a year off, it's going to destroy your career, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I went to a dinner party and then convinced 10 or 11 of my mates to also take this year off. <laughs> Get on, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which then affected the following years. But it, I mean, I suppose, and then I travelled on that year a lot and worked and so worked on summer camps in the south of France, teaching windsurfing and went to Africa for my elective and went to Canada. And I think travel really diversifies your mind and um, yeah. uh, you can get stuck and brainwashed in the in the traditional systems if you don't get out of them. So, And I see a lot of um, doctors and medical students go straight, straight through and uh, under the impression that the sooner you finish, the better. Mm-hmm. Whereas in actual fact, the sooner you finish is 
the sooner you start working and the sooner you get potentially um, locked onto some sort of treadmill. Yeah. So I, I, first of all, I'd tell a lot of medical students, take the time off when you can. Uh, go and do other things. Go and have fun. Um, you know, there's no rush to finish medicine because at the other end all you're doing is working. Right. Um, but then again, you can have a great time with medicine too. You know, I've done a lot of third world work and travel um, from that perspective. So I certainly encourage um, uh, junior doctors to do that. In terms of colleagues that have already finished, um, I suppose it's just being an example that you can do it. Yeah. This um, this isn't, for me, this isn't luck. It's come out of the last, you know, 15 years of uh, of just looking at things a little bit differently. You know, I really opened my mind when I did my master's international public health because then you start seeing how the world works and what drives what. So um, uh, I think it's just following your heart and passion. Mm-hmm. And um, this it kind of feels like luck, but then again, it's kind of not because I think if you open your mind to it, coincidences things start to happen. And once we started down this path, amazing how many opportunities and coincidences have happened. Yeah. So you certainly couldn't have pushed this path. It's kind of evolved, but then you have to have have to be open to it too. I love the um, um I, I love the correlation that there's you with the science and yes you had some art, but your wife had the art. And then if you look at the science of kombucha making and the art of kombucha, you know, the flavours and, and all of the things that go into making a really lovely tasting kombucha. It's an interesting yeah. correlation there with between you and Lara. And, um, oh, definitely. Yeah. And I just... I mean, she is amazing at flavouring it. I, I, yeah. Or uh, working with flavours um, you know, to the point where we've done a collaboration with um, Single Origin Coffee and, and um, one of their um, main uh, coffee tastes is sort of... Is recognised worldwide, and and Lara developed a flavour profile to mix with their cascara, um, um, shell of the coffee bean, mm. and uh, it blew her away. Um, <laughs> so the, the the sophistication that, um, I mean, Lara is a natural talent with that. Yeah, she doesn't even realise she's good at it. <laughs> she, you could see that though. You could, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I, it, it's great speaking to you about what you've done. And I've got to say, it's very interesting work with what you've done as an ophthalmologist as well, you know. Um, I think that uh, deserves a sort of round of applause with what you've done with, um, you know, Doctors Without Borders and working overseas and people who have really devastating eye conditions. But talking today about kombucha, taking us through what it is, quality, quality uh, kombucha making um, and then bringing in some art to it. I think it's wonderful. So thanks very much for joining us on FX Medicine today, man. Oh, well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. And, uh, yeah, it was great fun to meet you at the, um, the symposium. We'll be meeting again. <laughs> <laughs> Look forward to it. This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Don't forget to visit fxmedicine.com.au for today's show notes, extra research and other resources.